So, good morning. Um, it is a great privilege to be preaching this morning, and I am excited about what God may be saying to us in this passage from Acts that we're going to be looking at. Um, just, I suppose I should just begin by introducing myself briefly. As, as Keith said, my name is Mike Nixon. I'm one of the trustees here, uh, and I'm an occasional preacher as well. Uh, and I'm partly speaking today because the, the leaders are away, as been said. So you have got the, the B team, or, or maybe the A team, depending on how you think uh, I do. So you can tell me later. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in fact, it may be quite appropriate that they're not here, given what I believe this passage, uh, where it takes us, and the challenge that I think that it's going to present to us as a church. Uh, but we'll come back to that, to that later. I don't know about you, but uh, personally, I am loving the opportunity we have to learn together as we work through the book of Acts. I've got several favorite books in the Bible, but this one is right up there in, in the top, top five, let's say. Strictly speaking, Acts is a, is a sequel. Uh, its author, Luke, is one of the four gospel writers telling the amazing story of Jesus' life. He tells of the extraordinary teaching that Jesus gave and the miracles he performed. And he culminates in the death and resurrection of Jesus, obviously. And then in the Acts, we hear of what happens next. It's sometimes called the gospel of the Holy Spirit or the gospel of the church, as we discover that the end of Jesus' life on earth was actually the start of something new and equally extraordinary. And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, the church itself takes center stage. We get a glimpse of what life was like for the early believers as they met together. So the first thing we should do is read the passage. So I'm going to ask Lee to come and do that for me, if he's willing. Just make sure this thing works. They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily all those that were being saved. So, the passage um, that we've got begins with a reference to signs and wonders. It's one of the things that uh, distinguished the early life of the church in the miracles that the apostles performed among the people. This week there's been a, a lot of in the news about advertising on Facebook. Uh, the, the financial expert Martin Lewis is taking Facebook to court over the ways their service allows some advertisers to make it seem that he's endorsing their dodgy investment schemes by showing a picture of him next to a links to their dodgy websites. So uh, Martin is suing them to try and stop them making a false signpost from his reputation for financial acumen and integrity to their highly risky investment schemes. And, and the miracles performed by the apostles can be seen as a form of advertising signpost. 
although obviously in this case it's pointing to something real and exciting. They point out to people that something extraordinary is happening, signposts to good news, to something new. And it's a huge theme in Acts. Luke's Gospel has been full of the miracles of Jesus, events that point to the extraordinary life that uh, he led and the incredible new teaching that he gives. In uh, John's Gospel, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. And it is as if Luke wants to provide in Acts the evidence to prove those words of Jesus true, to prove it's the case. Acts is full of miracles, so many of which are direct echoes of miracles that Jesus himself performed. Several of the apostles have signs and wonders attributed to them by Luke, but particularly Luke presents Peter and Paul as performing miracles that seem to be immediate reflections of the ones performed by Jesus himself. So I've done a table. Here it is. It's quite difficult to read, I know, um, but it's, uh, it's a table of all the miracles, of some example miracles performed by, by Jesus, and then uh, of some also performed by Peter and Paul. So you'll recognize, if you know the gospel at all, the, 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 the five uh, miracles I've put that Jesus performed. So there's the famous one where he's impressed by the, the faith of the centurion, who just says he needs to see the word, and the servant back at home is, is healed. That's Luke 7. Then he healed the lame, another of my favorite miracles where he lowered the, the man through the roof. Um, he exercised evil spirits. There's the famous case where he uh, cast out the demons from the, 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 the herd of pigs, uh, from the man that went into the herd of pigs. Um, he healed by his presence alone. This is Luke 8. This is the famous story where a lady who'd been bleeding for many years just touched the edge of his cloak and was healed by his faith, although he knew that the, the power had gone out of him. And he raised the dead, that he was on the way to, to try and heal the daughter of Jairus when that first miracle happened in Luke 8. And the, the girl dies, but he carries on, and, and the girl is still healed. So famous miracles, extraordinary events that, uh, that Jesus performed. But similar things are happening in Acts. Uh, we don't need to go through all of these, but um, two of them are actually in uh, the passage we read. So... Uh, there's, for example, the example of, of Jesus uh, and, and the lady touching the edge of his cloak. Well, in the, this passage, Peter heals simply through his, his shadow. Um, and again, Paul has the same thing. So uh, the healings take place simply by handkerchiefs of his and aprons being passed out in Ephesus. And both Peter and Paul um, raised the dead. Uh, Peter raised Tabitha in Joppa. And I think my favorite one of all is the one in the, in the bottom right corner where Paul is uh, giving a particularly long sermon. And uh, this poor guy, Eutychus, is sitting on a window ledge. And um, the sermon is so long that he falls asleep and he falls out. So out of guilt, Paul goes and heals him and brings him back to, dead, to life. So extraordinary events. And the, the, um, they, they, they map from Peter and Paul back to, to the life of Jesus. So these echoes from Luke are deliberate. Jesus is no longer physically present, but the things he became famous for still happen through his followers. The healing that he still he performed can still be accessed through his disciples. Indeed, potentially more so, because Jesus in the form of the church is actually physically present everywhere in so many more places. Crucially, these extraordinary miracles are pointing to something much bigger. They point to a fresh revelation of God, to a breakthrough of the Spirit of God into the affairs of humanity. Uh, Malcolm Nichols has a phrase to describe what's happening here, which I find very helpful. 
And it's this is that. These miracles are signs. They're signposts to something else. The many miraculous signs performed by the apostles point to the bigger message. They are screaming headlines to tell people that God loves them. God is real. And you can see a demonstration that he's real through these miracles. This miracle confirms the message that you heard about the extraordinary teacher, Jesus, who died and rose to life, ascended into heaven, but then whose role in the world lives on through his followers. This healing that you've witnessed is a foretaste of the deep spiritual healing, physical healing as well, that's available to all disciples of Jesus. At one level, though, these stories can feel a little bit overwhelming. I believe in my time, in my uh, relatively short Christian life, I've seen a few miracles. Um, probably the most extraordinary one was the miracle of the contact lens. Um, I was a, a young Christian out on a church day out, and as you do, we were playing rounders, and it was my turn to bat, and I was, uh, wanted to prove myself, so I was a bit enthusiastic, and one contact lens popped out as I blinked hard while I tried to hit the ball, and we were playing on a field of grass, so the contact lens fell in among the grass. And it was quite serious for me, this, because I didn't have any money at that point in my life. I was a bit short of money, and my glasses were pretty much sort of um, not very good, a bit of a bad state. So um, I was worried how I was going to work the next day, and I was also worried about the money, how I was going to uh, sort it out. So everyone stopped playing for about 10 or 15 minutes and helped me to look for my contact lens with no success. Um, it's not surprising, really, because it is a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. But that one of the group uh, radically suggested that we should pray about it, which we duly did. Uh, and me, probably my mind more still on the challenge of how I would cope the next day and find money or find money for a replacement. When we finished praying, someone immediately looked down and their glinting in the light was my contact lens. So, I and countless of others here have experience of God's amazing intervention in their lives. But the trouble is, sometimes these events can seem somewhat trivial um, compared to the scale of those described here. My contact lens adventure, as faith-building and important to me as it was, seems a bit quiet and sort of intimate and personal by comparison to what we read here. So the stories can, the stories we read of Jesus and Peter and Paul, can feel a bit discouraging because many of us have prayed for equally dramatic breakthrough in situations we've been in. We will have known friends and family who have been seriously ill for whom we've longed to see the kind of dramatic breakthrough, the extreme healing described by Luke in Acts. But it's not happened. Suffering has continued, and that suffering can feel worse when you hear talk of spectacular miracles. This is a difficult area, and I certainly don't have anything else close to an answer as to why God heals in some cases, but not in others. But Luke does give some insight into circumstances in this passage when these dramatic New Testament-style miracles are most likely. Conditions which are going to be more conducive for signs and wonders. And it is when the church is growing. Essentially, these signs and wonders are evangelism. They're evangelistic aids. They're better than a Billy Graham mission, better than the Jesus film, better than the Alpha Course. These signs declare the love of God in a way that you can't escape. They powerfully point to the truth of God in a way that is really hard to ignore. And the miracles we've read about in Acts are so dramatic because the growth of the church in Acts is also dramatic. This was an absolutely central moment in the spiritual history of the world. The breakout of God in a wholly new way 
through his spirit in the body of Christ, which is the church. The key moment in history marked by spectacular events, signs pointing to the message of God come to earth and living with us. So miracles and church growth go hand in hand. If we want to see similar events in our time, something more than found contact lenses, let's pray for similar levels of extreme church growth. Let's commit to growing the church. Miracles will be or are likely to be associated with that. Which makes what happens next in this passage so surprising and, to be frank, a bit confusing. According to verse 13, no one else dared to join them. The extreme miracles were not working for certain groups of people. Signs and wonders were not actually bringing people closer to God, it would appear. Except, in the next verse, Luke tells us that they did. Um, Verse 14 tells us that more and more people believed and were added to their number. So it does seem odd. It's an odd juxtaposition. No one daring to join them, but yet they still grow in number more and more. So what's what's going on here in, in the passage? I think there are a couple of things. And the first one is probably something to do with insiders and outsiders. The church has been meeting in the temple, and it's likely to be the other regular worshippers in the temple who did not dare to join the church. Uh, They didn't want to step away from their traditional understanding of who God is and join this new movement. The Christians are the disruptors to the normal life of the temple, meeting over in a different part of the building. It was interesting what was going on over there, but a bit odd for some people. By contrast, the outsiders, those who are not invested in the traditions, find it easier to join this new movement. They come fresh, without baggage. They don't need to dare because they're less likely to face disapproval. But perhaps more importantly, it seems to me, these two reactions speak to something fascinating about who we are as human beings and how we react in these kind of circumstances. The reactions to the, the miracles can be split between alarm at such extraordinary events and excited appeal at something so amazing. There's an instinct for flight at something so strange, or for faith at something so wonderful. Uh, John Stott's commentary on Acts describes the different reactions as between awestruck reserve and missionary success. To be frank, if something very similar happened to this, like this this morning, uh, there would be probably a similar split reaction among us. Some of us would be enthused, and exhilarated, and some would be alarmed and confused. There's a common saying about the the dangers in the Christian life of missing heaven by the distance between our head and our heart. I think uh, the first person who first I first heard saying this was warning about the danger of over-intellectualizing Christian faith, of being so interested in doctrine and theology and detail that the life of faith is a completely dry exercise that never engages us emotionally. So our behavior never changes just from head knowledge and we never actually have a genuine relationship with God. That is a real risk, it's sure, it's it's true, but so is the reverse. It's possible to miss heaven because our reactions are solely emotional and we fail to engage our minds. If you find faith as a reaction to an extraordinary miracle, what happens when you encounter suffering in future and the miracle does not happen? What happens when the feelings change and life's inevitable disappointments strike, when we go through a season where everything around us is negative? The distinction is also one that's recognized by one of the great characters in Acts, the Apostle Paul. 
In Romans 5, verse 5, Paul celebrates God's love poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But later on, having celebrated love and emotion in the same letter, in chapter 12, he says, he urges the believers to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he draws the same distinction in a single verse in another letter, in the first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 5. He's talking about prophecies here, but in the same sentence he urges readers to not quench the spirit, but also to test everything. So, this is the first challenge from this passage. Are we among the awestruck doubters, or would we run with a missionary success? To be clear, this is a range or a continuum of human behavior. There isn't a right and a wrong way of being. We are likely naturally to associate with one side of the range to be more of a heart person or a head person. For me, it's probably not hard to work out that I identify on the head side of the range. My instinct before claims of miracles is to ask questions. Is that really what's happening? Are there other explanations? How serious was it in the first place? But I need to rein in my skepticism and make sure it never turns to cynicism. I need to be more open and to be better at feeling. For others of us, the problem is the opposite. We are ready to believe every tale of healing and fail to notice when the person turns up at church the next week with apparently the healed problem returned. We can be easily led by those who would exploit our desire to see God move for their own personal glory or gain. The challenge is to ensure that openness to God does not mean we are gullible or naive. The challenge is not to let our enthusiasm run away with us and to be open to other explanations as well. So where do you stand on that continuum? Are you a head or a heart person? Can you strike a good balance between the two? Or if you're strongly on one side or the other, are you able to value the insights of those at the other extreme so we can together strike that right balance? So these miracles are signs and wonders pointing us to God. They're not the meaning of faith, but they're glorious signposts that can draw us into life of faith and to become church members. Which leads us on to what seems to me to be the, the central point that Luke is trying to make in this passage. It isn't just about the miracles. It's actually about all about the content in which they take, the context in which they take place, which is the early church. Luke spends a lot of time in Acts introducing us to the central characters behind the explosion of new life that took place after Jesus' death. So there's Stephen, Peter, Philip, and Paul. He even turns up himself in the stories towards the end of the book. But it's about much more than just the apostles. He also wants us to understand just how special the early church is. He breaks it up in his narrative of the Acts of the Apostles with some wonderful insights into the rich community that was the first church in Jerusalem. So let's just look at these passages, and I'm going to ask Lee to come back and just read them to us. Jumping around, it in my hand. All the believers were of one heart and mind. Someone, went somewhere. Okay, sorry. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons amongst them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them bought the money from the cells and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Thanks, Lee. So uh, we are learning a lot about what the early church was like. We even know where they met this, uh, this is a picture of the church building. We know they, they met in Solomon's Colonnade, which was on the east side of the temple in Jerusalem. It was an area apparently of marbled columns with a wood roof. Uh, and the, this picture shows what it might have been like. Uh, we know that Jesus walked there on his visits to the temple. You can see that in John 10. Uh, we know it's where Peter preached his second sermon in Acts 3 uh, as an explanation of the miracle that he performed in healing the man crippled from birth. At this stage, the early church was still very much focused on its Jewish origins, and so they were meeting with the people in the recognized place of worship, even if they were beginning to understand that aspects of that worship in the system of sacrifices had been overturned by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Luke wants us to understand that this early church was just an extraordinary community in itself. With or without the apostles, the people of God were becoming something amazing. In the uh, particular passage we, we went through first, Luke wants to emphasize the healing life of the early church. That's what we've discussed, the miracles and so on. And despite the skeptics, the doubters, those people with more head than heart, the church grew. More and more people came. The sick were brought and laid on mats in such a way that even just Peter's shadow can pass over them. People come in from the surrounding towns bringing more sick people and they're healed. It's a wonderful picture and who wouldn't want to be part of that? But it's not, as we've just learned, the only picture of the early church that Luke paints, a picture of this new community. The two uh, passages we've just read are from chapter 2 and then chapter 4. Uh, Luke wants us to know that, wonderful as those healings are, there's a lot more going on in the early church that's just as wonderful. First, there's teaching. The people devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so that's the part where those of us who are more head than heart um, can feel most comfortable. The new disciples wanted to learn. The new Christian movement is disrupting everything they're used to. It's challenging the way of thinking they've inherited. So they want to learn and to understand. And these apostles, the apostles, 
the people who knew and were taught by Jesus, the ones to pass on the teaching to them. Then there's the worshipping community. They meet together in the breaking of bread and prayer. So these are the formal meetings in the temple court, but also the informal encounters as they meet together around the table in their homes to share bread and wine in memory of Jesus and to grow in him through prayer. Then there's fellowship, the early church having this sense of belonging to each other and having a common identity. It's a really powerful thing, the sense that they're part of something bigger than themselves with a purpose in the relationships that are built. The fellowship is an expression of the God they serve, the Trinity. They know him as Father, Son and Spirit, as a relational God. And so he invites, that God invites his people to grow together in their relationship with him. Then there's the giving community. They share with all who have need. Those who have plenty decide to sell some of their excess and allow the apostles to use it as they see fit. As a result, there is no one who's considered to be needy among them. They've kind of abolished poverty. I have uh, strong memories of my uh, father, my sort of conservative ex-Navy officer, parish church warden father, getting quite grumpy when we discussed this passage at home. He said something like blooming communists when the passage was talked about, except he didn't say he didn't say blooming. <laughs> However, my father didn't need to worry. There is no evidence of them giving up property rights. Rather, they simply allowed the love of God to work through to its logical conclusion. The grace so richly expressed in their lives spills over in grace expressed to others in need. So perhaps the first true Christians rather than communists. It's a joyful church. Their hearts are glad and sincere. This isn't the stereotypical understanding of church people who are miserable and judgmental. They're a fun bunch of people to be with. It's a joy and not a chore to go to church and to be part of this community. Finally, it's a growing church. The Lord adds daily to their number. People are finding faith in God through this community, through the healings for sure, but also for everything else that's gone on. The extraordinary events they participate in generate excitement and interest. People come and want to know more. It's, I think, a deeply attractive picture. I certainly want to be part of it. And the crucial point is that it's the same church that you and I belong to today. The characteristics described can be seen and recognized among us. We do see miracles, ones more significant than contact lenses. Countless numbers of people among us have felt the healing hand of God in their lives, both physical and emotional healing. We're looking to learn together from the apostles' teaching. It's exactly what we're doing at this precise moment. We explore the book of Acts through this, through this season in church. We've worshipped together, thanks to the band, the beginning of the service, and we're going to do so again in a few moments. We meet together corporately in this big building to break bread, but also in our homes through the week. We have fellowship together. I value deeply the friendships that I've built here. We build strong and supportive relationships with each other. We give and we share. We try and address the needs within and outside our fellowship through community projects like the Lord's Larder, Christians Against Poverty, Yeovil for Family, Counselling for Yeovil, but also in the simple acts of kindness among us as a fellowship, giving things that we no longer need, hosting families, hosting young people. There's a sense of joy to be found here, and there's growth here. We aspire to be a New Testament-style church, and by and large, we can claim success. Of course, I know it's not all good, 
Many of us will have concerns about some of the things that go on. Many of us have experienced significant hurt at the hands of others in the church. Many will have experienced disappointments that a ministry has not been recognized or whatever. It's understandable. But as the people of God, we do need to apologize for and learn from the hurt we cause and try to do better. But it was the same in the early church. And it's important not to allow ourselves to idealize the picture that Luke presents in Acts. Disagreements arose very quickly then too. There are disputes about what the true apostolic teaching should be and how it should be recognized and so on. Indeed, after the end of Acts, the bulk of the rest of the New Testament is simply letters that are trying to address this kind of thing. Many of them written by Paul, some by Peter, letters to young churches that address the disputes and try and settle disagreements. So it's not all good, but it is extraordinary. And the big question really is whether you want to be, to be part of it. Um, I gave to this sermon the title of Signs and Wonders and the Early Church, but really we could actually kind of reverse that. The early church is the sign and the wonder. It's the principal place through which uh, people can go on this journey of faith. Certainly the miracles that are described in this passage are part of the journey, but they're only part of it, and there's more than just them to discover within the church. So the leaders are away. It's just us as church members here talking to ourselves. And my second challenge to you this morning really is just to ask if you're willing to recommit to it. When we do get hurt by the church, maybe even by the leaders, when we're disappointed by things that happen or haven't happened, it's easy to get discouraged and just take a back seat or to stop coming. It's more than understandable when that happens and that we do need to learn from the hurts and the discouragements and address them. But it is also worthwhile revisiting this picture of the early church to be reminded of what an extraordinary place it was and then to map that forward to today, to our experience, and remember what the church has been to us at times in the past, and see the potential for what it can be again in our lives. So, if the musicians would like to come back, um, if you have been hurt by the church at any stage in your life, then, then do feel free to come forward, and people, I'm sure, will pray for you. But let's stand together and uh, just ask if you're willing to recommit with me to this, this wonderful journey that is the church. So let's, let's stand if you're willing. Father, we want to thank you for the church, for the extraordinary example of the early church that we read about in Acts. Thank you for what it means to us today. When we're jaded or disillusioned, help us just to recapture the excitement we can see in Acts and that we know we have known in the past. Give us grace to start again to commit to be part of this journey together. In Jesus' name, amen.